0: No history, no script, just vibes. Listening to Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about bar movies and movie bars. I'm Bethy Squires and Bienvenue, Mesdames and Messieurs! It's Bastille Day! Uh Ah ha ha! Oui oui, c'est si bon! (laughs) With me, as always, is Monsieur Thomas Krabinski.
1: Hey, (laughs) I'm also reporting live from uh, the Bastille Day Parade.
0: I'm from. I'm in the Bastille. I am in the oubliettes of the Bastille right now, live recording. So if there's an echo, it's because I'm in uh, a 14th century jail cell.
1: And we actually met uh, our special guest in this 14th century jail cell. <laughs> Bethy, do you want to ease us into that? <laughs>
0: Absolutely. She is a staff writer at Vulture. She's a cool gal, and she's like the premier food reviewer. <laughs> of an entertainment magazine which is always a uh, a plum peach to get. It's Rebecca Alter.
2: Bonjour. <laughs> that- <laughs> yeah, that's what people uh that's what people come to entertainment publications for is the food reviews. I feel
0: like I should back up a little bit. You have somehow <laughs> found yourself in the niche of every time a
2: celebrity has a like fast food promo, they make you review it. Oh yeah, I see. I the Part of the bit is that I pretend like, oh, I'm so imba- embittered that this is my difficult job that I have to <laughs> eat all this delicious food, but it's fully something I, I, I forced into being like a regular thing. The first one was the Travis Scott McDonald's meal, and from there I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to stop doing this because... It's very fun to eat McDonald's for work. Yeah, and then to expense it.
1: I've I've got to know Rebecca. So I, I remember the Travis Scott meal that was last summer. I was in Connecticut. I thought I'm going to try this. This is a cultural moment, and they were sold out um, at the nearest location. So how was it? And what's what are what are some of the high points of celebrity fast food collaborations?
2: I'm just so confused that they were sold out because it was literally a quarter pounder.
1: I just don't know what element of that was sold out at your McDonald's. Maybe they weren't participating.
2: Yeah, maybe I, I do remember the first place I went to when I asked about it when like the launch started at the dearly departed West Fourth Basketball Court McDonald's in Manhattan. Uh, they were like, we don't we c- we we don't know what's going on with that story. And then I went to like I tried two more, and the third one on day one knew what was going on and could give me what was. A quarter pounder. Um, so that was good. The new BTS meal was very good. It came with new sauces. Um, I'd say the low point was the Shawn Mendez meal at Chipotle. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I'm like really hoping more celebrities keep doing these. Also, ghost kitchens. Oh no, the low point was, um, Wiz Khalifa's ghost kitchen, uh, franchise. Do you know about Ghost Kitchens? Oh, I know
0: about Ghost Kitchens because I'm a big fan of the podcast, Podcast the Ride, and they talk about all of the Ghost Kitchens that um, are inside of uh, Chuck E. Cheese. Buca de Beppa. And Buca de Beppa. Oh, Ch- Chuck E. Cheese, of course. Both. Totes both seas. Uh,
2: yeah, well, Chuck E. Cheese was the famous one where, like, on delivery apps, they were rebranding as Pasquale's. And, of course... As a fellow podcast, The Ride listener, I saw right through that because I know the names of all the Chuck E. Cheese characters now. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think I haven't been to a Chuck E. Cheese in a decade and a half, at least. I don't remember like watching one of those shows ever. And now I know the name Pasquale
2: Pea Pie Plate. And that's that's on me. That's how I fucked up. I learned that. <laughs> Um. Yeah, there's one. It's it's weird because there's one actually in downtown Brooklyn that whenever I'm running errands, I pass by decently frequently, like in a terrible mall. And I'm almost like, should I try the Pasquale's takeout? <laughs> should I eat the Charles <laughs> Entertainment Cheese Pizza? Uh, but it's funny that you beat me to the punch of fast food because when you were all saying where you were that was French, I was going to be like, and I'm in a pret de manger <laughs> No, we just put you in prison.
1: Uh manger is real study abroad vibes for me. London? Yes.
2: Those are some good pretz.
1: Those are those are some good pretz and the program paid for our lunch like two days a week and it was always pret so I, I definitely felt out the menu. Only two okay, days a week your
2: program was nicer than my literal job. You <laughs> get comp lunches.
1: If you want to go back to my college, Rebecca, I can give you the website.
2: Yeah. I wanted to do never been kissed, but at <laughs> college, so it's not creepy. Like it's not underage.
1: Yeah, it's a great idea.
0: I do want to circle back to the Shawn Mendez Bowl because I was thinking about the movie we're talking about today, Marie Antoinette, and I was thinking about people who get pilloried in the press, so to speak, or like get mobbed like uh, Marie Antoinette did. And you ran afoul of the Shawn Mendez stands with that review if I remember correctly. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
2: That was to the point that we had to call in, like, someone who does, like, kind of, um, like, for the company, if someone, like, is attacking a writer, they'll make sure that we're not trying, you know, scary factions aren't out there trying to, like, dox you on the dark web. And normally this would be, I'm guessing, for someone writing an expose about maybe, like, incels. Like, I don't know what this would be for, but the the Menta's army got so angry at my overall, like, I was critiquing the bowl I wasn't critiquing Sean Mendez he's fine well that's not good enough it ha- has it, it isn't good fine. enough for Mendez's Army
1: <laughs> if anything you're coming to the aid of and defending Sean Mendez's honor saying you know Sean deserves a better bowl
2: Sean Sean deserved a better bowl uh, I, I but I was kind of putting some blame on Sean for it uh, <laughs> and then also my uh Sean <laughs> because he's from like the Toronto area uh his grandpa is like a mechanic who's like friends with my grandpa so i just made sure that he didn't pass on my review to sean Mendes's grandpa
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah so there's a at at any reputable media institution there's one person who's in charge of making sure that nobody is trying to dox you on the on the dark web and then there's another person who's just on grandpa patrol and is
2: making sure yeah. that none of the grandpas are sharing intel amongst each other yeah My grandma called me after she read the article and she was like, what is a twink? And I was like, trying to, I was like,
1: (laughs) an attractive,
2: svelte young man. And then I heard her yelling to my grandpa, like, a twink.
1: (laughs) Attractive, svelte young man is good. I think that checks most of the boxes.
0: Yeah, I'd only add hairless to that. (laughs) A smooth, a smooth young gentleman. A smooth, slim fella. Um, well, I guess speaking of Twinks, what is your, not, not at all speaking of Twinks. Uh, Rebecca, what is your relationship to watching movies in bars? Is that something that you like to do or are you more of a, uh, watch a movie and then talk about it in a bar? What's your
2: strat? This feels to me like the concept of this podcast is so deeply, I think, LA to me because I, I, I I'm, are bars, are movies playing in bars there all the time? Like.
1: It's it's less that bars are like really hosting screenings so much as like every bar has a TV and if there aren't sports playing sometimes there'll okay. just be a movie on and so you're catching bits and pieces
2: I disagree that every bar has a TV I'm just
1: talking about LA now I guess
2: <laughs> No that's what I'm even like just one being on mute like I I get that as a premise and and I'm in the recesses of my brain I'm sure that this is a thing I know that sports on TV are a thing But I feel like I'm never... Something's not on mute in the bar unless actually... Okay, I found it. When you go to um, a live Drag Race watch party at a bar, uh, it airs on VH1. And sometimes for the 20 minutes or so before the episode of Drag Race starts and the queens are maybe like setting up and maybe talking and people are still milling around, whatever movie is playing on VH1 before Drag Race starts will be on mute on the big screen. Uh, And there will always be a movie after Drag Race and we'll catch the first three minutes of that (laughs) before the bar shuts it down so that we can see performances or whatever from live queens but i feel like the vh1 rotation of movies which is really good it'll always be like baps or clueless like really fun stuff
1: selena maybe selena could be a great selena every house,
2: frankly it's it's never not selena um you always catch the very end or the very beginning of selena
1: both great i
2: mean you hope it's the beginning because the end is
0: a bummer and not really the mood you're wanting to bring to your drag race viewing experience (laughs)
2: <laughs> no that's a good point and that beginning is is quite the performance
0: i've been putting beaty beaty bomb bomb on jukeboxes a lot as a re-emerging post-vaccination <laughs> that's been a nice time for it's me a
1: strong strong choice yeah, it's nice
0: to have access
2: to jukeboxes again <laughs> and what is your go-to drink at a bar oh um it i really 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 am kind of in this great old stage of my life dirty gin martini that is like the ideal i want it to taste like a jar of olives i want it to be (laughs) so so cold um yeah it's basically that if it was socially acceptable to have a bloody mary like at night which i feel like it's not like if that didn't mark me as like extreme red flag weirdo it would be that
0: yeah i also i think i've had a i've had a Bloody Mary as late as 4pm, but after that, I don't think Yeah, In
2: the privacy of my home, like, that'll be what's for dinner. It's basically (laughs) gazpacho.
0: Although if you did (laughs) come out to LA, you could have micheladas, kind of, whenever.
2: Yeah, I guess micheladas, it's it's not it's, I'm, I'm in Canada. Do you know about what what a Caesar is? Mm, It's, it's like a variant on the Bloody Mary, isn't it? With like A Caesar is uh, a Bloody Mary, but made with Clamato. Mm. So it's also, there's an essence of clam in there. You don't taste it. It's like an umami (laughs) note, the same way there's like fish (laughs) sauce and Thai cooking, but it doesn't taste fishy. Got it. Um, And I think it's just so much more ubiquitous in Canada. And it's like a really common drink and you could buy like a tall boy of it. Um, Like pre-batch Bloody Caesars. So I feel like I am just so nostalgic for that because i i'll get a caesar at any time of day in canada i don't think that's normal i don't think i'm like speaking for the public but i think it's more normal than a bloody mary after hours
0: part of it too is that a bloody mary is such a labor intensive drink and if you don't have like like the jug of it pre-mixed for brunch you're really putting putting a big onus on the bartender to make you a little gazpacho
2: yeah, I'm not gonna say barkeep, fetch fetch your horseradish. <laughs> <laughs> Construct me a tower of celery and buffalo wings and olives. Festoon my glass. But a a a dirty martini, I think, is similarly kind of salty savory uh and feels a lot classier. So I think I've I've drifted towards that. But I feel like for Marie Antoinette the pairing would have to be um a French seventy five. True.
1: What is uh, as a as a a, a total uh pleb what uh what's a french 75
2: i offered that up without knowing but i know that it's maybe (laughs) a champagne based cocktail it's a champagne cocktail
0: i feel with a strawberry like it's bourbon and champagne it's what like there's a bunch of drinks that were invented at harry's new york bar in paris like in between the wars and that i think is one of them
2: okay i'm looking at it right now it's gin champagne lemon juice and sugar
1: oh that sounds Mm. great yeah that would have been my preference when I got uh, strong-armed into the third Bloody Mary of my life Monday morning. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad Bloody Marys have entered the micro-zeitgeist of watching movies at the bar because I needed to release these feelings.
0: Wait, how did you get roped into a Bloody Mary
1: well, I was playing uh, Magic the Gathering, this new hobby of mine, with my friends, and uh, we were having a really nice time. It was good to see the boys I hadn't seen in a long time, and they both got Bloody Marys, and I felt like I couldn't be the one of three not drinking a Bloody Mary. So it was, uh, it, it, they were not exerting their influence over me, but I just, I felt insecure about it.
0: Yes. This has been happening to me recently with, uh, Thomas, your, your special gal, Steph's friend's Have started to drink fireball shots. I think is a bit. (laughs) I don't know what's going on there. Hard, no. But it's been happening, and I cannot turn down a shot because I'm a good time gal. But (laughs) fireball is the devil's piss, and I'm having trouble. I'm struggling (laughs) socially.
2: Yeah. No, that got sworn out. Like, as soon as I moved out of dorms end of freshman year, (laughs) never did fireball touch my lips again. Yeah, I'll do a jungle juice before I'll do a fireball. I forgot about jungle juice. One thing I will say about Magic the Gathering is my seventh grade French teacher, Monsieur Sprags, the way he decided to teach us French in grade seven was... He brought in his French Magic the Gathering card collection, laminated, gave them to us, and was like, if you don't return these in pristine condition, you like, you fail. Like, these are (laughs) my Magic the Gathering cards in French, and made us play Magic in French. It was a terrible way to teach.
1: That's terrible, but it's also incredible. Sprague. It's a very specific
2: lingo you're learning there. I know it's it's not super useful. It's not like learning how to like ask where the bathroom is or like no tape la mana. Like what are you <laughs> how to order food? Yeah, I,
1: I feel like learning the words toiling mage uh, not 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 a good jumping off point for French.
2: <laughs> yeah, we learned that like mana is the same in English and
1: French. <laughs>
0: yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> construit in deck
1: yeah anyway all all conversations dovetail back into magic the gathering for the past two weeks of my life
2: <laughs> i'm sorry
1: yeah it's We're cool not... i like it
2: you're having a time uh but i feel like that's the that's the tie to to marie Antoinette. take it back to french is this is where the french empire and legacy like this is what they have to show for it <laughs>
1: Also she famously stacked a deck with weak creatures who uh, bound together like a chain link fence. Um she was a real magic hit.
0: She was a big card player as it de- is depicted in this movie. Um this is normally the time in the show where we ask uh, our guest why they chose a the movie, but I kind of strong-armed you into Marie Antoinette, but it didn't seem I didn't like, know this. Like, like a push. It was it was like I was like, "Hey, we're doing a timely episode." yes no give me an up down and you were like up so what is your experience of marie antoinette before having to rewatch it for a podcast
2: um i love sophia coppola Uh, i don't think that makes me like that that, that's not like a groundbreaking statement i'm not like the devil's advocate like on that maybe (laughs) i am to a terrible person um and I think Kristen Dunst is like, she, of all the girlies at it today, of all the actresses, of the Australian girlies, of the British girlies, of the American girlies, she is like my number, she's my number one living actress. I Whoa. just think she's the best. I think she is charming. I think she does, she can lead a comedy so well, a drama so well. Uh, to have the charm that she has in this, to pull off a bring it on, to do a melancholia, like she's my gal.
1: Let's wait. Let's not leave out small soldiers, though. That was my formative uh, Kirsten Dunst performance.
2: Is it bad that I don't know what that is?
1: It is a PG thirteen Toy Story riff about action figures with military chips that come to life and fight. But she is one of like the two leads.
2: Is that different from the movie Toys? Yes. It
1: is it is different and better than the movie Toys.
2: Okay, <laughs> Doesn't Small okay, Soldiers
0: okay, kind of indict the military-industrial complex because these, like, programmed action figures are, like, bringing all of the intensity and warmongering to, like, a child's bedroom that, like, we brought to Nam?
1: Yes, yes. And it's, it's Joe Dante. I actually think it is, like, uh, a movie that holds up. Obviously, I have the baggage of extreme nostalgia, but... Uh, Kirsten Dunst is great in that movie. Anyway, I derailed us. I'm sorry.
2: No, but, yeah, when you suggested Marie Antoinette, like, A, I love when something's, like, themed to a holiday. So why not make it, like, a random holiday even better? Um, And this, I think, is, like, a really kind of, you know, it, it gets held up for, oh, it's fun how she's using modern music, but it's olden times. And, oh... It's like so indulgent and like visually sumptuous, but I think it's just like a great it's it's totally the rhythm of it, it's this type of historical movie I really like. I'm like, would we have the favorite without something like this where people are being all kind of fun and anachronistic? I don't know uh I think it's great
1: i had I had never seen this movie before, and I am a big Sofia Coppola fan, but this was just a weird gap for me. I think I thought it was um more straight lace than it is, and I fucking loved it. Like, the movie opens with Gang of Four. All of my favorite songs are in this movie. It has this kind of, like, gauzy, picnic-at-hanging-rock quality that Virgin Suicides has, and I, I love the sort of uh, macro arc of the movie where it starts out kind of, like, light and whimsical, and there's so much fun to be had, and then it gets progressively heavier, and you're also navigating the weird baggage that Marie Antoinette has historically. It's it's really special. I loved it.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's, like, like it, it does this trick of, you know, the character, like, as as a historical meme, you just know the palace of Versailles, you know, let them eat cake, and you know, like, the, the, the type of wig, uh, right. and it's just this very, like, frivolous marker, and I think the movie, too, uh, on the surface and, and the visuals of it can feel very frothy and frivolous, but, like, within that, I think there's, like, a lot of power in telling that story that way. And it's very impressive how with all the baggage against her, they can make that character sympathetic in a way that I think only Kristen could.
0: Yeah, I think starting the movie with a Gang of Four song with, like, an expressly communist band, kind of, for people who are paying attention, that gives a mission statement to the movie, in a way. Like, if you're not clued in to, like, Gang of Four, then maybe you don't get, like, the joke there, or, like, the thesis statement i would say and and yeah it's this movie that you know people love to like extol the surface pleasures of people credit it with like inventing millennial pink and like bringing a lot like reinventing the pastel goth game and like being the most pinterested (laughs) movie ever like you know the movie co-founded tumblr like that's the energy people talk about the film but um i found watching it this time uh, not to be too much of a bummer, but the theme of uh, partying at the brink of societal collapse has <laughs> never hit harder for me. I was like, oh, we are in the court of Marie Antoinette, but the literal earth is the revolting peasants. And we're just kind of ignoring that and partying until we can't.
2: Yeah, it was very funny rewatching it today. Um. Having had the privilege to escape to like my friend's house out in Vermont while I was watching, while I was scrolling through Twitter and seeing um, the city flooding and my mom asking me if my basement apartment was underwater yet. And he's saying, I don't know. Oh, God. oh well,
0: the movie's fun. Like, That's going to be fun to come back to, to see what
2: your situation is. I think it's fine. I texted a roommate and she was like, no, I would have told you. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know we're we're jumping ahead literally to the end of the movie. but when the revolt is happening outside of the palace and she walks out onto the balcony and she literally bows and sort of like presents herself to the people that was such a powerful moment um, that that's been sticking with me that and every one of the needle drops for the last couple of weeks since I watched it
0: yeah people when the movie came out, people talked a lot about Putting it in the context of like the mid aughts celebritant moment. So that was like another interesting thing to look at with like a decade's time having passed. You know, this movie came out when like the Bimbo Summit was happening. So like Paris Brittany and Lindsay Lohan were like flashing their vaginas to the paparazzi and people were like, ah, about it. And this was sort of a call for empathy and and giving personhood to somebody who is the subject of mass media speculation and that has only (laughs) become more resonant after like i am paris and the free britney movement
2: yeah definitely seeing the way that someone that powerful and wealthy at a time of such like and and famous etc etc be under as the, the court version of a conservatorship, the 1700s version of that level of, of control and observation, uh, while also being that, you know, wasteful and out of it is very um, interesting. It's also funny because I'm thinking now of like the other Versailles movie, which is Queen of Versailles, which is just about <laughs> a rich woman building a mansion in Orlando. Um, and I think that would be an incredible, that would be a good bar movie. And this would be a good bar double feature.
0: Yeah, I think that you could watch Queen of Versailles, like, in a sort of, like, a screening situation or with subtitles on, and then put this movie on, like, I think on mute, but just remixing the songs that are in the movie or something.
2: Yeah, to have a good playlist going. And both also, both movies full of really cute little dogs walking around, filling every mm-hmm. shot.
1: We, we love And, the like, dogs. every
2: movie should have... Little dogs with like a little baby blue ribbon around their neck. Like, or a diamond collar at one point. <laughs> or the diamond collar. I just, ugh, it's every every frame is so fun.
1: When she's forced at the beginning of the movie to give up her dog, and it can be replaced, but she has to hand that puppy away, that's not a beat that would have resonated with me as deeply before I became the owner of two small kittens, but now that I have two little sibling cats, I imagined myself just sort of at a moment's notice being told that I had to leave that guy behind, and I was like, it." And that's like three minutes into the movie, but I, uh, I love dogs, I love cats, don't do that to me.
2: Yeah. That's more powerful than her, you know, leaving home and then saying you have to give up your your nationhood and everything else it's it's the fact that they take away that little baby pug
1: and her response to it is is she's she's so emotional she's so gutted by it and her the arc of her performance is so incredible in the movie i'm sure we'll talk about it more but at the beginning she's she's incredibly emotional and as it goes on she has to become increasingly disaffected to deal with this world to which she's been kind of involuntarily interpolated
2: It's really incredible how they set you up to just have the most sympathy. And it's because she is this, she is this like tiny kitten for the first 20 minutes of the movie. Like she's so good at playing that and scenes like that. Or, you know, when they're first, the the chambermaids are doing all their business and she goes, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Like it's so immediately you're on this person's side in a way that's, I think, very I don't know more than a lot of it's why I love this movie it's it's there's so, it's like a it's like mean girls it's at first you're like oh she's so sweet and she's so <laughs> naive and then she gets to high school and she has to she has to adapt and she's good at it yeah
0: i think now is probably a good time for to like people generally know the story of marie antoinette because it's literally taught in history class but um to just give an overview of like the the arc of the movie like what parts they're highlighting um so i'll just do like a brief flyover of the plot if that's all right with y'all yeah uh so kirsten dunst is marie antoinette she is one of the younger children of empress maria theresa of austria and she's getting married off at age 14 (laughs) 14 in the beginning of the movie to louis Sez, who is the dauphin of france uh louis was never supposed to be king uh his dad died and so now he's next in line and he never and his older brother died too so he never felt like he was the right guy for that role because he just liked locks and keeping to himself (laughs) uh but you know history was thrust upon him and he he did what he did so they wed and uh Marie has to figure out how to navigate the court of Versailles, where everybody is, like, whispering gossip about her. She's trying to find uh, alliances within the court so that she can just fucking hang. And she also uh, has yet to uh, consummate her marriage with Prince Louis. And she didn't. I looked it up for seven years. They didn't have sex for the first seven years of their marriage. Or didn't conceive. But the the stuff they were doing didn't count as sex for the first seven years of their marriage. Um, So she is, you know, trying to to represent Austria during a time of great political strife. This is like one of the first ages of diplomacy, of like international diplomacy, because basically Empress Maria Therese married her kids off to every single royal court of Europe. So this was the first time that all of these courts were really in communication through this family.
2: Okay, (laughs) momager.
0: Yeah, she was the original Kris Jenner. (laughs) And I guess that makes Maria Kylie? Yes. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. She is Kylie. And so she at first is starting to snub the king's mistress, Madame DuBerry, played by Asia Argento, but is pressured into being at least civil to her. And also is eventually uh, pressured, eh, takes up the responsibility of conceiving children with the king. Uh, Louis becomes king. They start giving money to America. France is becoming poorer and poorer. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Marie is having parties. She's given two different vacation homes within the grounds of Versailles. She gets Petit Trianon and then another one that's called like the Queen's Hamlet. Uh, and that's where she goes to uh, fuck Jamie Dornan, and good for her. <laughs> uh, and and basically, history is catching up to them at this point. They've been partying, they've been having a nice time, but the times they are changing and eventually, sort of in a, a nice little bookend, in the same way that Marie had to say goodbye to her Austrian friends in order to join the court of Versailles, she has to say goodbye to her Uh, Versailles friends in order to for them to flee for their lives and we never see uh, Marie arrested we never see we never actually see physical violence of of the riot we just see them leave Versailles and then the bedroom that had been Marie's kind of prison for most of the movie is completely ransacked and, and you're sort of left with that image and that's the movie
1: that was pretty good
2: it's long. Yeah, good. <laughs> good summary and good um, historical, I guess, like, I don't know. Knowing who Marie-Therese is is <laughs> helpful for me. Knowing uh, the order of how Jason Schwartzman came to be king. <laughs> Definitely helpful. Because for however many times I've seen this movie, I feel like I'm not paying attention to <laughs> what any of it means in content. Well, that's not true. I'm paying attention to what it means, but I don't know about lineage and who's who. I don't know about like for Marie Antoinette's brother like where he was. Oh Before yeah. he came to visit. Okay, like yeah.
1: I I do think that though is by design. I think the movie really wants to double down on who she is as a person in a way that is not allowed by the chronology, which is like the bulk of what we learn in history class. Um so it's interesting to think about what the movie emphasizes.
0: Yeah, and it's coming at it from her I think part of the reason that we don't know much of the context is that she doesn't know much of the context. We are given her very limited cloistered worldview. So she doesn't know how bad like um, wealth inequality is in France. So we don't, you know, we just, we just know what's going to happen eventually. So that in a scene where like she says she has to like make a concession for spending, she'll get, she'll line uh, an entire like side of Versailles garden with small oak trees as opposed to adult (laughs) oak trees and that's you know very big of her good job
2: no yeah it presents this whole world of like these different royal courts that she and many of the characters have spent their entire lives in and uh at least she doesn't know doesn't understand her level of complicity in larger whatever's going on in the world and it's so it's so interesting to see like how many people within this Versailles court system like how many people it sustains it's that same thing you feel when you're watching the favorite of like okay yeah there's the important figures the names you learn about in history the people who are part of like a lineage of kings and queens and then there's like kind of like 80 to 100 other fuckers who are just like hanging out (laughs) who just get to be there and have apartments on the side in the palace
0: yeah and like uh or have token jobs like uh a lady who uh, the way that uh you're standing in court has to do with like whether or not you're allowed to help dress the princess like those things are important because whether or not you get dressing privileges that's like the only time you can talk to the queen And that's the only way you can get, like, loans from the queen. You can secure a title. There's, like, this whole apparatus surrounding her that is completely out of her control.
1: Your mention of the hierarchy with which people are permitted to dress Marie Antoinette is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because that's where she starts to realize how absurd this hierarchical system is and she's standing there she's shivering the room is not warm she's naked with all of these spectators and they're kind of bumbling around trying to figure out who's next in line to assign her an article of clothing it's it's pretty great and I think the movie spending minutes within that scene rather than really establishing the larger chronology is what makes it so effective
0: in that scene where the She's about to be handed because she can't take anything off a tray. She has to be handed things specifically. She's about to be handed her chemise so that she can stop shivering. A new countess who's more important comes in to like do the job and starts <laughs> taking off her glove with like finger by finger and like really laboriously taking off a glove. And the the slowest way of seeing somebody take a glove off since like Gypsy Rose Lee um, is incredible. The t- the comedic timing of that actress beautiful
1: it's amazing and this makes me think of a line that rebecca referenced which is that this is ridiculous and then the response is no this is versailles and it made me think about the like really dumb and oft quoted dialogue from 300 (laughs) where gerard butler says this is or the the person he's about to kick into a fucking hole says this is madness and gerard butler responds no this is sparta this came out the same fucking year. Whoa. That's like effectively the same exchange. This is honestly more interesting to me but like it just whizzed by and that like cemented itself in the cultural consciousness. We were robbed.
2: Yeah. I think
0: the fact that the This is Versailles line didn't hit as strong as This is Sparta is partially by design because the movie is, as we're talking about, just vibes. It's like No history, no script, just vibes. This is the first time that I watched the movie with subtitles on, which meant that I got to see... I could read every shitty thing that, like, Molly Shannon is whispering under her breath.
1: It's so funny. It's, like,
0: hidden in the mix. You can't... You're not intended to really hear it. You're supposed to get the vibe of people saying shitty things about you behind your back. But this time I could read that she's saying, like, she's such a cold German spy, but that's terrible to have sex with. It's, like, (laughs) great. (laughs) So good. This movie is incredibly cast. I can't... I can't imagine... I'm trying to think of a movie that I think has a more well-suited cast for the task at hand and it can't do it oh it's
2: stacked to the gills
1: i i think when the movie came out i know i think we all agree that the music is cool and the sort of general anachronism is cool but there was a lot of criticism at the time that was like why put those songs in the movie but it's also like I don't know, putting fucking like Rip Torn and Steve Coogan in a movie is like inherently anachronistic because that's a star image you can't separate from what you're seeing even in that wardrobe. And so I think to isolate the music is just to not be watching the movie, so much of it is equally kind of jarring, but in a really cool way.
2: Yeah, also it gives you like love it's it's funny because for how stylized this movie is which is what so many people fixate on what I think really elevates it for me above, you know, your boilerplate historical drama is that it's the, the one thing that doesn't feel over stylized is a lot of these kind of like that, the casual off the cuff, uh, not doing a British accent, even though it takes place in, in France or <laughs> Austria, uh, nature of the performances it's the fact that people are anachronistically talking in a way where you don't have a barrier um as a modern viewer to to relating to them and empathizing and 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 just being being in it, it of course it pulls you out of it uh but it also makes you view these people more as like
1: i as don't know people. more like
2: if you if you transpose these people to a modern day drama about a uh, frick about the white house or whatever or comedy about the white house like It would be they'd be talking in a similar way and you wouldn't be seeing them just as these stylized like porcelain dolls being moved about in a particular way in this um in a historical movie
1: yeah i think i think those those formal ideas are inherently transgressive and 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 sort of um Accomplish the mission of the movie. I think when you completely fuck the syntax, you completely fuck the semantics, you're able to understand this historical figure in a way that we've never been able to. If you tell it in like, if you make this movie look and feel like Downton Abbey, but you provide intimate glimpses into Marie Antoinette's life, that's not going to be enough to shake up kind of the existing perception. It has to totally look and feel different. Um, and in that way, the movie is kind of magical and really effective.
0: Uh, Jason Schwartzman said that he was inspired by movies before this that came up that like did break that pattern and showed historical figures as being truly human. You mentioned specifically that uh, he when he saw Amadeus as a kid, he kind of it destroyed his mind because it was the first time that he realized that people from the 18th century laughed. (laughs) It just had never occurred to him that they weren't just, like, mm, standing stolidly like they were in their portraits, that they were allowed to do things like laugh and fart, like in Amadeus.
2: I think that's so great. I was feeling the two things I was thinking during, you know, the masquerade and the opera and things like that were Amadeus and the Walking on Broken Glass Annie Lennox music Mm -hmm. video starring John Malkovich and Hugh Laurie. Like, these are my favorite historical works. Uh, And this captures definitely that uh yeah it's that thing of you know we never see victorian photos of people smiling because like the exposure took too long or whatever so you think that every victorian person was super serious and never smiled um and it makes such a difference to see like people acting normal uh yeah, and it makes – and it really definitely, like, any scene where there's a party or they're shoe shopping or they're in her billiards room playing, like, whatever game it is she's playing are, like – or having a dinner party or having a picnic. These are also, like – they're visually beautiful and there's they so very few historical things that I watch fic- – historical fictional things make me want to go hang out there. I'm like, oh, it probably smells terrible. It looks really <laughs> bad. I'm like, this looks like it, like, kind of smelled good and was fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no,
2: I just wanted to
0: shout out second unit director Roman Coppola, because I think a lot of the music video-esque montages in the movie... um, I know the gambling one was definitely him. He did a lot of, like, the montage scenes.
1: That shit's so good. The whole Coppola clan. I mean, you're talking about Schwartzman really thinking about what it means to tell the story in this way, but he's got... I think it's prudent to talk about the women in the film. But I think Schwarzman's performance is great. And he has the funniest line, which is when his father dies and they realize the weight of that and that they're about to sort of assume the throne, he says, dear God, guide us and protect us. We are too young to reign. And I like I just like blew air out of my mouth because I'm like, oh, that's like a really funny human moment.
0: That's funny. I think of it as a sad moment because like, yeah, you really are. (laughs) This is going to go so bad for you.
1: <laughs> I think there's an intersection of like what is funny mm-hmm. and what is sad when it is really candid in that way. Uh, but I, I, I agree with you.
0: Um, sorry to be kind of springing this on you, but speaking of, of Louis says, have and I have any of you heard the rumors about his dick?
1: Sorry, what? Wow.
0: Uh, it, I think Just it's important to talk about uh, Louis the penis. In this, because it comes oh, up not
1: literally Jason Schwartzman. No, I thought no, we were no, about no. to do dirty celebrity gossip.
0: We are, but not for this century.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Then I'm fine.
0: Cool. Uh, so there is heavily politicized debate about whether or not Louis the dick worked. Uh, there was <laughs> there is historical evidence that he might have had. A, a disease or a condition that um, constricts the foreskin so that it cannot retract during Ooh. orgasm or during um, oh. erection, so it could have been very painful to have an erection, and that is something that if you read Empress Maria Theresa's letters, uh, she she talks about it as like an, an option. So people who are citing. The Austrian take on the marriage used that as evidence that it was uh, Louis's fault that they weren't having sex, and that it was a medical problem. Well, wow. uh, now I read an article by a French historian that was like, au <laughs> contraire! If anything, his dick was too big, and that's why she was so frigid."
1: Yeah, I read a I read an article from a French historian that says he's one of the most virile guys, and that he's got a huge hog. Yeah, he had a huge um, hog, and too, <laughs> if anything,
0: too much come. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but <laughs> there's there's evidence for both, but the fact is that it is highly, even today, highly politicized. You can't figure out what the truth is. But the movie, without really like taking a particular stand they, they're like physically there's nothing wrong with them but you you can tell from the interview with the doctor that they didn't necessarily know what medicine was so they couldn't really say that medically there was <laughs> nothing wrong with him uh but uh a line that danny houston's character has of like they're just two bumblers or something like that they're just too too inexperienced to know what to do that's directly lifted from his letter to Empress Mia Theresa, Apparently, what would happen for, like, a little bit when they were first trying to have sex is that uh, Louis would enter her and stay completely still for two minutes and then uh, leave, still hard, and then go to sleep. And he thought he was doing sex good at that time.
1: That actually, the way you described it does sound good. It's
2: sting, it's sting <laughs> style. Just tantra, baby. yeah, yeah. He's playing the long game. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Seven years of a long game. But I think that's part of what makes this movie so interesting is that it is pulling on historical sources using the actual place where the events took place, but is still giving such a highly, like deeply personal take on something that could be so like cold and detached.
1: Am I making this up, or is there a source where the French government um, gave them all of the access they wanted, uh, reasonably affordable locations, because they loved Boston translation so much, and then they fucking hated the movie when they saw it?
0: I didn't see that. I saw that the guy, the Versailles, Mr. Versailles, we'll, say, we'll call him Johnny Versailles uh johnny versailles read the script and he loved that it showed her as a person he was like you're you're bringing her to life so i think the guy who was in charge of the historical site did give them unprecedented access which was like three days which is like more than anyone's ever gotten but they only had like three days to shoot in versailles uh, because he liked the personal touch now it was booed at Cannes. So, but
1: they're <laughs> fucking <hated> dorks. <laughs> the contemporaneous <laughs> no. criticism is so embarrassing. This movie, I think, is literally a masterpiece.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 funny. Like, of course it was booed at Cannes, because I feel like the French film-going Cannes elite are absolutely opposite day every day of the year. I'm just sitting here thinking, like, watch Annette actually be bad. No, don't uh, say it. No, I
1: think, I think Annette's going to be good. I think Cannes... Sometimes they're right, like, they booed Only God Forgives and Lost River, both of which I like, but I understand the reception, and that's gonna be good. Kara's fucking good.
2: I just don't like whenever a musical's like, but I'm not like the other musicals. (laughs) I'm a musical for smart people, I'm like, shut up. But it's (laughs) Sparks
1: and Kara, like, that's fun. Yeah,
2: I think that they... Aren't necessarily
0: thinking, like, I don't think that Sparks is thinking of it as being a musical for smart people. I think they're thinking of it as, this is what we've been doing for 40 years, and you should know by now what you're getting into with a Sparks musical.
2: All I know is, this is actually my bias, is they booed Firewalk with me, historically, and that's, like, maybe my favorite movie. Do you see this
1: tattoo on my arm?
2: It's, I think, of all the, like, yeah. That makes me, I get angry thinking about it now. I'm like, how could you walk, how when the movie ends like that, are you responding with such a lack of sensitivity that you're booing?
1: Firewalk is an untouchable, perfect fucking movie. Marie Antoinette's a masterpiece, Firewalk is in fucking space.
2: So, I don't know. And then, even after Shrek, they premiered Shrek 2 there, so, who knows? And (laughs) Clerks 2 got an
0: eight-minute standing ovation.
1: (laughs) Right, which is uh, an unwatchable piece of shit. So it, it goes in different directions.
0: Oh, the French. That's beautiful.
1: We're never going to do a Clerks 2 episode, but That's okay.
0: I'm fine with that. Okay, I might good. insist on a Clerks 1, but probably
2: not. I think Clerks 1 would play on a bar TV. That would play just fine. I've seen Clerks
0: at a bar, and it as long as there's subtitles, it's fine. But it's such a talkie-talkie that if 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 it's just the... On mute, you're just seeing two you know attractive for New Jersey fellas sort of yammer at each other.
2: You're getting that crisp black and white <laughs> that's true
1: i i don't I don't want to get too into sort of like the 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 larger production stuff because we're very much in it talking about the movie, but I think it is so cool. That Sofia Coppola leveraged all of the goodwill and and all of the positive industry response she had to Lost in Translation to make this movie. This to me feels like the movie that a filmmaker wants to make but can't make until they've made their like big fucking great earth shattering thing. And I like Marie Antoinette more than I like Lost in Translation, me but too. it feels like I'm totally like, with yeah, you. Yeah. It's more of a swing.
0: For sure. Especially, I think, for a, a woman director, because Lost in Translation is like a semi-autobiographical, smaller movie about, you know, personal stuff. It's it's a movie that you expect from a woman director in some ways, like not not saying that as like shade, just saying like that's sort of the mean that it's in. And then Marie Antoinette. Is like it breaks it two ways because you don't expect Sofia Coppola to make a big period piece. Then you also don't expect the big period piece to be as
2: personal and like semi autobiographical as this is. Yeah, I think more than I think more than Virgin Suicides. I think this is actually my favorite of her movies. Rewatching it, that's kind of because I. I love the audacity. Uh, I love something I like any movie that's going to be a favorite movie of mine is something that also has so much going on and just like color and production and over the top visuals and the costumes and the cakes. Like I just I, I need all of that for something to tip over from like a, I like and respect this a lot to being like, oh, I like love this and want to watch it forever.
0: Something that I discovered while doing research was that the color palette for the movie was specifically based on Ladurée uh, macarons, which was the I which that. is the macaron store at The Grove in LA <laughs> until recently. <laughs>
1: But that's such an amazing other it's layer so of anachronism, <laughs> and it's a weird that's prism. So perfect. And no one needs to know that. Obviously, it has now been revealed, but like that's just for her, and that helps to unify the vision. Uh, it's amazing.
0: They also, very specifically in the color palette, chose colors that aren't in the French flag, like because so often, uh, like period pieces around the french revolution are like brown and sepia and then the only pops of color are the tricolore of uh red white and blue of the french uh revolutionary flag and they specifically went okay we're gonna do pink yellow and teal because those are like opposites of red white and blue well not exactly opposites but like you know off the color wheel from those specific colors it was, like, designed to help you feel a little bit out
2: of place while watching the movie. Right. Yeah. Every, every element designed to make us, like, to, to remove it from whatever history class, his period piece realm that we're used to, I think, like, really, really serves it. Should we talk about needle drops?
1: I was just thinking about talking needle drops. So, yes. Yeah, I, I would love to.
0: I was uh, for the I've made a note near the beginning of the movie of I keep waiting for there to be a bad needle drop, but one hasn't come yet. And then about 20 minutes later, that one stroke song came on. and I was like, "Okay, this one, all the other ones. Oh, no,
1: no, 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 no. No, I like it. (laughs) I, I like them all. I think every needle drop is good in this movie. And I also think as the years pass and you go to see movies in the theater, there are so many miserable needle drops and there are so many duplicate needle drops. Like anytime you have like a period piece where like people are shipping off to war and you play fortunate son, I'm like fucking blow my head <laughs> off. This is so boring. It's in like a needle drop manual. Like the stroke song is like a little corny, but it's good. I, I think this movie is incredibly good in its placement of each of the source cues
0: do you have a favorite off the top of the head
1: uh there's the one two punch that fucking kills me which is as jason schwartzman's delivering that line i mentioned earlier you hear the like wind blowing through the chimes at the beginning of plane song by the cure Mm -hmm. and i was like is that what this is are these the chimes from plane song and they're walking down the stairs and you get that big synth swell i was like John, the floor you go straight into ceremony by new order as she's gambling which is fucking great and then the avril 14th piano as she's walking through the field i'm like Aphex twin in a marie antoinette movie like this is amazing so those are my three
2: rebecca do you have any faves you want to shout out i mean those are all great moments anything that's ever playing when you get like a painterly shot of like the beagles running next to horses on, like, a, on a, as they go to hunt the stag. Like, that's just heaven. Like, that's, like, a beautiful oral and visual, like, screensaver, basically. I could watch that on a loop. And the, like, comedy of I Want Candy is so <laughs> fun. Like, that's just, like,
0: that's perfect. How about you? I already shouted out the using Gang of Four at the beginning, and, like, the song's lyrics touch so much on the point of the movie if like, The problem of leisure, like when you have too much time and your brain starts to eat itself, what are you going to do about it? But also, I think two scenes at the ball stick out to me. The um, sort of orchestral rearrangement of Hong Kong Garden going into the real version for when people are actually like fucking uh, whooping ass on the dance floor when it goes like it starts with like the the sort of Bridgerton-y we're going to do a vitamin string quartet version of this, which is good. I like that. But then when it's time to really give the vibe of being at a cool party, they just play the track. And I think that's a really good one to punch. I also love the Bow Wow Wow cover of Fool's Russian, which is when she's <laughs> uh, in the carriage ride home after flirting with Count Fersen, And it's like, I think Marie is around the same age as the lead singer of Bow Wow Wow was when she sang that. So it has like a nice, echo there and then i was just thinking about like i think at this point uh sophia coppola owns the shot of a woman looking out a window especially if it's like in a vehicle of some kind like that's just her shot now you have to like pay royalties
2: yeah yeah
1: those wide shots of her on a balcony standing outside of a window are some of the most striking in the movie um But uh, when you mentioned I Want Candy, I just want to say I think Rose Byrne is, like, one of the funniest comedic performers alive. Uh, I think Spy is, like, a profoundly underrated movie. And I think everything she says in this movie, even though it's not an out-and-out comedy, like, made me howl. When she asks for more champagne, I'm like, oh, this... She knows what she wants, but it's, like, very funny.
2: Rose Byrne is such a, like, a scene-stealing assassin it's yep, like yep 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 it is so not like unfortunate. it's not that thing you learn of like oh be like a generous player in the improv scene it's like no it's like every ounce of oxygen in any scene she walks into when she's playing comedic in anything it's like it's it's a vacuum towards her. Like she is so fun. But
0: historically, that's what the Countess de Polignac was. She was like this rowdy party girl who took the air out of every room and literally had to be sent into exile because she was too much fun. Like <laughs> people
2: hated her. <laughs> but that for how comes fun back. I want that movie.
1: Yeah, that's how great the casting is, though. Like knowing that Rose Byrne was the perfect person for that role at the time this movie came out is like. That's incredible. And that's Sophia and it's the casting director. It's obviously a collaboration, but holy shit.
2: And like really early Jamie Dornan mm-hmm. and really early Tom Hardy. Like you're getting people right at the <laughs> oh, start, yeah, Tom oh, baby, baby Tom Hardy. <laughs> like, you're getting people at the start of like amazing careers and it totally fits.
1: I also think she gets one of the better Jamie Dornan performances ever even though it's <laughs> early in his career. Like you watch him in this movie and you're like That guy's going to be amazing, but it's like, he might be better here.
2: Yeah. (laughs) He's
0: good in Barb and Star, but...
1: He's so good in Barb and Star. I think, yeah, maybe he's going to rock it after that movie.
0: The thing about Rose Byrne that I realized... I I texted Thomas this when I was watching it, um, watching the movie. We were talking earlier about how everybody gets to just use their accents, there's one group of people that don't get to use their accents and that's the two Australians in the principal cast. Judy Davis and Rose Byrne have to pretend to be British. Everybody else can be whatever.
2: That be- because that's a step too fucking far. <laughs> I'll be- I will believe Jason Schwartzman sounding like himself in that wig and in that getup. A step too far is an Australian in a court of class. Thank you. I can't because t-
0: there wasn't there wasn't in Australia at the time.
1: Do, do you know Do you know what my theory is there, though, that's beyond that? I think because Sophia Coppola draws so heavily from Picnic at Hanging Rock, I wonder if there is, like, an unconscious insecurity. Like, oh, no, I don't. No one should hear Australia. No one should be thinking about this thing that I love and, and draw from.
2: And that's so funny because, like, the little Edwardian girls in Picnic at Hanging Rock, like, I think are trying very hard to not sound Australian. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. The it's least all British. Australian Australian. The higher class <laughs> yeah. you are, the more British
0: you sound in that movie. Uh, or at least the higher you're like playing your class. But I think, honestly, the answer is probably just a very simple reason of the two characters that that i know are played by australians are specifically two characters that need a very not just a british accent but a very specific british accent like because you need judy davis's character to be so tight butthold as like the the person in charge of Marie antoinette's like whole introduction to versailles her like head headmate i don't remember her title but her job of being like the no no
2: no that has to be a British person. And then And Rose Byrne needs to be the sort of British person who, even though it's a movie that takes place in France, when she says things like ta ta, bonsoir, it sounds like, <laughs> like Exactly. Like- she she needs to be basically out of like absolutely
0: fabulous.
1: There's also like anytime Rose Byrne's talking, you know she knows she's the funniest person in the scene. And I think there is a way that she's deploying this British accent that she knows is funny and so proper and precise. She's just having fun.
0: Yeah. I would agree with that completely. Hmm. Did we hit everything? Let's see. We talked about the king's dick. We talked about Australia. All the normal things you bring up with Marie Antoinette. We talked about Free Britney.
1: We can come back to Free Britney. That seems like an important and timely uh, Extremely cost. timely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that this movie, you know, Sofia Coppola gets, like, a fair share of criticism for only being interested in the inner lives of rich white women. Like, people will will criticize that, but also, she, I think she should also be allowed to write what she knows. Like, she's always been a rich right, white woman.
2: No, I think that's staying in her lane, and it would be so much worse if she was trying to take on and and or appropriate and or simplify and or try to shoehorn in other things like that's i'm if anyone on this earth i'm okay with that like all the nepotism queens and kings should stop like pretending to be otherwise and just be doing this level of thing and so sophie coppola is one of them yeah she's like there's a rose when i found out riley keogh or whatever is elvis's granddaughter i'm like okay then stop doing what you're doing like enough (laughs) You, literally, your grandpa got in trouble for doing the same thing. Like, you need to stop.
1: <laughs> I, I also... I, I have, like, a real fucking allergy to any level of industry nepotism in a way that I think is ultimately corrosive and and, and makes me less good at evaluating things. But uh, Sophia Coppola, it never bothers me. So much so that I liked On the Rocks. D- did either of you see On no, the Rocks? No,
2: but I want to... <laughs> yeah you're not alone in that like a couple of i saw that on some year-end lists most like. people
1: i know like hate it and think it's dog shit
2: well it's also just it's such compounded uh nepotism because you also have rashida like it's just right. uh but at the end of the day it's like when you got the goods you got the goods
1: totally i also and think
2: they've got the goods
1: yeah, and the Rashida thing, it's like, it all goes back to what you're saying. It's like, there is an honesty to just sort of embracing that privilege and that social status that, like, there's almost, like, a candor to that where I'm like, okay, this is fine. Like, On the Rocks to me just feels like a Nancy Myers thing. It's like a, a, a very wealthy socialite fantasy, and it it almost feels like a fairy tale despite being, like, this... Bad Dad story. I don't know. I think that movie is like insanely watchable.
2: Although to talk about uh, a f- a failed like a like a terrible example of nepotism not working out, Nancy Meyers fricking daughter's Home Again. Nancy Family Home
1: Again. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> Bad movie.
2: Haven't seen it. Terrible
0: it movie. Hasn't, it hasn't come up for me.
1: She doesn't have the self awareness. I think of Sofia Coppola. Um, no
2: no also at the end of the day that whole family just spins gold so whatever all those cousins and kids are good at what they do it
0: is this thing of like families tend to go into the same business anyway like people don't call it nepotism when a plumber's son becomes a plumber it's just because we have put such inflated worth on stardom that it seems the most unfair that this like family inheriting of business comes up it's like it is a system it's a systemic thing that happens in every industry it's just that this one industry is highly privileged
2: yeah i'm gonna also give an example of like how it could vary so much within siblings and within one family and probably alienate maybe some of your friends and listeners spike einbinder awesome cool hannah not buying it (laughs) so
1: I reserve the right to be selectively and aggressively judgmental when it comes to cases of nepotism. I think I think some I'll give a free pass. Uh, I will justify it to myself. Some I will not.
2: I think that's totally fair. Uh, I was. Well, I'm sorry. Was... This is all. Hmm? <laughs> sorry, I was going to say it's our modern American version of royal lineage. Right. We like to set them up in marriages that we follow as well. It's this is the this is the most on point thing we could be talking about in relationship to a movie like this.
0: Yeah. And I want to back up a little bit, not say that I'm like pro nepotism in the arts. I'm more saying that it, I, I am just trying to point out that it does happen in every job. And that also uh because of the place that we put the arts in society, the the need for generational wealth is honest. I think I have more of a problem with people who are born rich. And not from talented families, I have more of a problem with than people who are born rich into talented families.
2: You know what? Ultimately, I agree with you because the ones that are born into talented families where the parents were directors, like, that's probably not like two or three generations deep of wealth. And that wealth came from making movies and not like being CEO of like a big pharma company or an oil rig or whatever else that so many like modern actors' parents do. Um so yeah, could be worse. And you're also right. Like literally naming convention comes from the fact that like you were named Cooper because you made the barrels and then your son was also Cooper because he also made the barrels. <laughs> like that's just what that.
0: That's a good bar fact. Is. I always forget that Cooper is the guy who makes the barrels.
1: Uh, yeah, Bethy, I think you're making a point that is salient and pragmatic, and I will continue to <laughs> arbitrarily assign value to children of celebrities and their work.
0: Oh, you can uh, absolutely everyone is allowed to have uh, emotional reactions to things that are not uh, argue outable. That's that's part of being a human, baby.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm I'm a human.
0: Well, and as we we're talking about in the free Brittany of it all, uh I think it helps that, that that Sophia is coming from this place of privilege to help illustrate how even like the king and queen of France are victims of the system of the aristocracy. Like their lives are made so much worse by the position they're in in the society, but then the peop- then everybody who's under them's lives are like even worse, but Everybody is being harmed by this system.
2: Yeah. Yeah, also, I don't know. She's good at... Like, I don't mind a poor little rich girl story. Like, I don't mind that. I think they get told in ways that could be extremely um, entertaining. I like them as a genre of fiction. I love poor little rich girls.
1: (laughs) As a huge fan of Succession, which is kind of the poor little rich family story, I... Lots of poor
2: little rich boys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that... When something sort of, like... There's, like, a real schadenfreude to, like, watching these people who have access to unlimited resources who still can't find happiness. They're just sort of plagued by misery. Like, I think think that's a good mode of storytelling. (laughs) This is not that. I, like, really feel for these people in a way that I feel less with succession. But I hope my point is made.
0: I think there's still room in the movie where you do laugh at them for being such dumb shits. Like the Little Trees
2: moment or... <laughs> right. <laughs> right, or her whole little vacation home Hamlet, and her cottage core era, where she gets to pretend to be a commoner. Like these, th- it's it's funny. Um, it's funny because it feels extremely plausible and transportable to now.
0: Yeah, Marie Antoinette glamping, like in her own
2: palace's backyard, is very funny
1: i, re- I really like anyone who's ever
2: gone on like a mission trip and felt good about mm-hmm. it because they camped for a week you know who saved who really <laughs> in the grand scheme of things oh yeah she would be doing it for for she'd be she'd be posting like really fun instagrams from now i sound annoying i'm not even gonna finish the sentence one thing i wanted to say before we were done though is that not that i'm necessarily before we're saying that we're, we're done. getting there soon or whatever um I wanted to say this also felt extremely like a mid a mid two thousands hipster period piece as much as it is a seventeen hundreds <laughs> period piece, and it's really valuable for that for every little bit of like the Wes Anderson, y Noah Baumbach-y, Sofia Coppola E type of just framing things in the center of the screen, the soundtrack that's so knowing and indie and like it's it's I I really it made me feel nostalgic for the mid two thousands and everything you were saying about like the Celebutante... Lindsay Paris, Britney culture happening alongside it, of it all. Like, it, it's just definitely a time capsule, as much as anything, of that moment.
1: Not to open a can of worms, but was she dating Tarantino before or after she made this movie?
0: I don't know. Sorry.
1: Because they had, like, a real, a real run there, but I don't know I th- when exactly that happened. This is
0: before she was with Guy from
2: Phoenix, but... Right.
1: Who she's married to now, right? Thomas Mars?
2: Phoenix. Oh, the yeah. band. Yeah. I was going to say the band, the movie, the A, a guy city. from the city. <laughs> she's
1: married to a guy from Phoenix, Arizona.
2: Um, okay, but also being married to a guy from Phoenix is extremely 2006. Like, this is all so... Like, it just really captures that moment of, like the stuff white people like blog like it's just <laughs> of a different time uh and i think it has historical value um on that level as
1: well but certainly transcends a lot of that like a lot oh. of that has no value today in a way that marie antoneta does
2: well that's the funny thing is like at the end of the day something could like be like be hitting all those like dinging all those boxes and still be a masterpiece of a movie yeah a five-star movie like i think eternal sunshine is another thing i associate with all of those markers but it's still a great movie that stands up in its own right and has Kristen dunster
1: (laughs) oh i forgot she's in that movie You're right
2: but yeah no there's a it's it's funny because a lot of that stuff we like shit on because we cringe at things that were trendy then and not now but this is both an example of something that like it, it just it just packages packages a lot of that up really and it's nicely. gonna come back in i don't know four years that'll be what the kids are into
1: yeah i hope people are really into american idiot in two years oh
2: i i saw certainly. a tweet recently that was like oh we're already there um that was like oh mark my words party rocking is gonna come back <laughs> <laughs> like, i was like i hope so
1: i hope that uncle nephew synth rock duos come back as well yeah um
2: not enough uncle-nephew rep- representation <laughs> where, where after Where they them. do raps
0: about getting side-by-side blowjobs.
1: Yeah, they also talk about that in interviews. That LMFAO is deranged. I hope that's not controversial with our <laughs> audience.
2: Um, I get them confused with the Kia hamsters. I don't know who's who. I saw
0: <laughs> Redfoo in the WeHo Target, and I saw the Kia hamster at the Americana Apple Store. Does that help? There okay. you go. Um, I do want... And I saw Marie Antoinette at Erewhon. There you One,
2: go.
1: So <laughs> she was buying a Chia
0: bowl. Speaking of things that we look back on with Cringe, I don't know if this is that or whether I want to do it again, but uh, my, my Marie Antoinette phase also came around the same time as my Club Kid fixation. So I started going to bars, like, dance party nights, queer dance party nights in Bloomington, Indiana, in a slight Marie Antoinette look. Like, I would do my hair <laughs> a- as big as I could get it in Midwestern humidity. And I had a dress that I sewed, like, you know those, like, lacy sleeves that fall out of, the, like, sleeves? I made oh, yeah. inserts that you could put into whatever dress or jacket you want There would just be those sleeves spilling out. So that was, like, and I had, like, this... um It's called Poudre de Violet. It's a violet powder that I bought in Colonial Williamsburg, and I would, like, festoon my décolletage with it and then go uh, dance to the Party Monster soundtrack in people's basements
2: in Indiana. So committed to the bit.
1: Are there photos, Bethy, that we can see?
2: I I will look for them. Great. It's such a perilously thin line between what you just described and... Hot Topic Alice in Wonderland aesthetic <laughs> kid. Um,
0: yeah, I recently made a rug for my door that's like a neon orange and purple camo print that I thought was like very avant, intentional, power clashing, like like current era Prada color story. And then I looked at it again and I was like, ah,
2: oh, fuck, this is Jack Skellington colors. <laughs> <laughs> that's the danger it's like you think something is like oh billy eilish e from like her previous color era not right now uh and then you do realize that it is um johnny depp's interpretation of the mad <laughs> hatter
1: one of the great mad hatter performances
2: <laughs> top three
0: we'll say it rebecca where can people find you online if they want to um dox you for hating sean Mendes?
2: <laughs> yeah, I want to say up front I also do I'd say most of what I write is actually not even about fast food. Uh That's very true. but it's not nearly as fun. Uh you could find me at Ralter on Twitter and you could find me on Vulture and that I think is it right now. And I guess now that bars and bars that play movies are open again, you could find me at Syndicated like watching whatever's on in Brooklyn
0: um i before we completely leave plugs uh speaking of people getting mad at rebecca headlines this weekend or earlier this week was another one where people were like quote tweeting it being like um really uh to announce colin jost and scarlett johansson's baby your headline was uh america's royal family is expecting a baby (laughs) is that right or is pregnant
2: yeah and no one like got that of course that's funny and people got we got like thousands of angry replies and quote tweets and got ratioed and it has not let up the ratio is crazy of people being like what no one's ever called them that or like I don't even know who this guy is or like America fought to not have royalty and it's like oh I bet Scarlett Johansson's publicist worked really hard on that one and I'm like, what? If you see that headline and that picture and you think we're being serious, like, I don't know what to tell you.
1: <laughs> I, was, I was talking to my girlfriend about that earlier today because I saw that last night and I saw two people get really mad about it. And I was like, this is clearly ironic. And then I clicked on it and I was like, oh, that's, that's the person we're talking to tomorrow on <laughs> the podcast but it's like so clearly a joke like no one in earnest would call them america's royal family
2: i know i was like angry texting with a friend like from work basically all last night where we were just sharing more and more like also like blue check generally like media literate people (laughs) sharing this like they were mad and rolling their eyes and stuff it's like moves like bloomberg all over again people just like lacking
0: any media literacy (laughs)
1: I would Monday's say we like are Bloomberg. amidst a, a crisis of media literacy. <laughs> I think There's very little of it on Twitter.
2: Speaking of partying on the collapse of society.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And speaking of another muse of Sophia. <laughs> yeah. Colin Jost.
1: Bethy. Speaking of Twitter, do yeah. you um do you have an account on I there? Do
0: I'm BethyBSQU on Twitter. Um, I also write for Vulture, not as much or as well as Rebecca, but I'm there i do stuff too yeah i think you write a lot and i write all right but i'm doing blog posts so it's like it's silly stuff mostly or there are some days where it's like reporting on three celebrity sexual assaults and then waiting to see whether biz is actually dead or not
2: no as we are both people who have like who do the off hour shifts of like evenings and weekends there uh It's terrible to just be going through your Saturday and like hoping a celebrity doesn't die and then Olympia Dukakis fucking croaks on you and you have to write that up and it's ruining your Saturday and you're also a little sad. It's the worst feeling. (laughs) So check their obituaries out on Vulture
0: and I'm on Instagram at Bethy Squires. Thomas, you've got a Twitter.
1: Uh, I do have a Twitter. My Twitter is at uh, handsome underscore pal, and if you don't see my face, it's uh, the skeletal monster from Michael Mann's The Keep.
0: And I think if you just search Foster the People, <laughs> you'll be able to find him.
1: I, did I tell you the? Did I? Sorry to derail, but did I tell you the story of? So Rebecca, my bio for a while just said synths and keys in Foster the People <laughs> because I thought that was funny. It's like a it's like a thankless role in a band that's not cool. Anyway, um uh there was a terrible instance of gun violence i tweeted something about how guns are bad Uh, a few people retweeted it and suddenly a man from orange county responds to me and goes that's pretty rich honey considering you're in the band that popularized school shootings with your hit single pumped up kicks and i was like buddy i'm not i'm not foster i'm just one of the people
2: Um, (laughs) It's like Columbine and video games all over again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. I I love the idea
0: that there would be no gun violence if Foster the People hadn't written that
2: song.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's tough to know. Since 2011, that's just the world that we're living in.
2: I will say I did the morning announcements at my high school, and I got to kind of like DJ over the PA system for the half hour or so before spell rung and national anthem and stuff. And there were a couple mornings where like I played it like fully not knowing what the lyrics were. I probably heard it in a commercial. And I was like, yeah, this is fine. That was on the rotation.
1: Yeah, we're I mean we're not necessarily foster the people heads on this podcast. We remain kind of a neutral position.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um cool. oh, I feel negative, but okay. <laughs> I,
1: I I think I'm mixed negative.
0: Don't think I know a single other song besides that one. So too little data. For me to make Fair an assessment, enough. and no interest in acquiring more data.
1: No. Well, if you've made it an hour and twenty minutes into our podcast, uh, be sure to subscribe and review on Apple's podcast platform.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And we've got an Instagram at movie bar pod or movie bar underscore pod, and a Twitter at movie bar pod. Don't get it twisted, like I just did. And uh, you know, uh, have a baguette today. Celebrate. France's independence from France. They did it.
2: France's independence <laughs> from France? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know, you end the podcast, Rebecca.
1: That's actually our standard sign-off. That's not even Marie Antoinette specific.
2: No, we're just always... Yeah, we're, we're very
0: <laughs> Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité up in this podcast.
2: Well, coming coming to you from us and Fostre, L'Epreuve. L'Epreuve. Au revoir! À bientôt!
0: so long
1: watching movies at the bar is edited by colin jenkins with show art by Lindsay farrell and that theme you hear at the top that's quentin mulligan